Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell in High Water, my podcast for the recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon with big ups to my pal Riza, the presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan and the producer of our dope theme music. Last week on the podcast, we went deep on what I called and what I'm certain was the show of the summer, that show, The Bear. If you've missed that episode, you should go back and take a listen to it. It's very good with Jeremy Allen White and Chris Storer from the show. But this week, as we all come back from the Labor Day weekend, heading into the fall, we're going to do another television episode and not just a television episode, a two-part television episode, not about the show from the summer, let alone the show of the summer, but instead about the thing on television in the months ahead, the fall, the winter that I am most excited about. And that would be The long-awaited, much-anticipated, and having seen a fair amount of it, I will tell you, really fantastic, sure to be definitive, five-part docuseries on Tupac Shakur and his mother, famous Black Panther, Afeni Shakur, from director Alan Hughes. The documentary series is called Dear Mama. It's on FX later this year. The first episode of it, which I have seen all of and is just mind-blowingly spectacular, gets its world premiere a week from now, a week and a day from now, depending on when you're listening to it, on on September 15th at the Toronto International Film Festival. That first episode is as good a piece of documentary making as I have ever seen, and the long five-hour version of Dear Mama promises to be something very special when it airs on FX later this year. A big part of the reason why Dear Mama is as exciting and as definitive, I think, as it is, is the filmmaker behind it. That's Alan Hughes, who in the course of his career now stretching back over 30 years has been one of the most innovative, path-breaking, bold, daring, sometimes controversial, always uncompromising filmmakers to emerge from black America in the modern age. He and his brother Albert back in 1993 made a movie that you may remember if you're a fan of cinema, or really were just alive of a certain age at that time because it was very good and very controversial, like nothing anyone really ever seen before. That movie called Menace to Society. People remember Boys in the Hood, another story about that same milieu. This was the kind of darker sibling in some ways, a darker, more violent, more menacing sibling. They went on, Alan and his brother Albert, to make a series of movies, much commented on, all of which have really stood the test of time, Dead Presidents in 95, American Pimp in 99, from Hell in 2001 in the Book of Eli with Denzel Washington in 2010, Alan on his own then made one of the defining documentaries of the new series of high-end prestige television doc miniseries, a piece that he did for HBO called The Defiant Ones that came out in 2018. It's the story of Jimmy Iovine and Dr. Dre and how those two guys shaped the contemporary music industry and modern culture as much as any two human beings uh, working in the music business in that time. That series, still spectacular. The traces of it, the influences of it can be seen all over the place. Whenever anybody makes a music doc or a doc about culture in general, you will see nods to the groundbreaking artistic and aesthetic choices that Alan Hughes made in The Defiant Ones. Alan and I got to be friends got to know each other, at least first in 2020, in the middle of the presidential campaign, in the middle of the pandemic, we were introduced and we started texting with each other. Uh, He wanted to talk about the campaign. I was very interested in Alan's work. So we talked about that. And at some point I said, Hey man, like you haven't made a movie or a series in a little while. It's now the defiant ones a few years ago. What have you been working on? 
And he said, I have two projects that I'm working on and they may be the last things I ever do. And that was a tease that I could not resist. So I was like, yeah, well, <laughs> tell me about that. The first of those was Dear Mama, which is not just a documentary about Tupac Shakur, someone who has been written about endlessly, someone who's had television shows made about him, movies made about him, documentaries done about him, but a, a, a dual biography in this doc series that Alan was working on of the son, Tupac, and his mother, Afeni, and how important Afeni Shakur, famous or infamous, depending on your point of view, Black Panther, political radical, someone who had a huge influence on her son. And that is what Dear Mama is. It's really a, jo a joint kind of parallel biography that explores the relationship between mother and son, encapsulated by the title, Dear Mama, which of course, if you're a fan of Tupac, you know, is the, the song that he did, dedicated to his mother, that is maybe his most lasting contribution to, to, to the culture, uh, a, a song that's been enshrined in the Library of Congress, uh, one of the great hip hop songs ever done by anybody ever. And so on the podcast today, we talk about Dear Mama. Really, Alan has not talked to really anybody about it in any length. We got together in the winter spring a few months ago when he was still in post on, on Dear Mama. I had seen pieces of it and I've seen more of it since, but we had a really long conversation about their history together, why he was the right filmmaker to make this film. He was someone who uh, at a period of time was like a mentor and a very close friend of Tupac's. We talked about the experiences of, of their closeness and then the break that occurred between the two of them that ended up with Alan being beaten nearly to death by Tupac's associates who were a member of one of the two famous and infamous LA drug gangs at the time over a falling out that the two of them has had. Over the years, that break ultimately achieved a kind of a resolution when years after Tupac's death, famously in Las Vegas back in 1996, his murder in the middle of this giant feud between the West Coast and East Coast families of hip hop, the family of Tupac Shakur eventually approached Alan and gave him basically unlimited access to them and to all of the archival material around Tupac because they felt if he could overcome the break between the two of them, he was the right one to make this docu-series. We talk a lot about that, about the emotional complexities of being able to get there and make what is destined to become the definitive thing that's ever been done on Tupac. Um, Alan, he has been working on this thing for three years and it's finally here. And I'll give you just a little taste of this right now. This is Alan Hughes in the, in the fullness of time reflecting on who Tupac Shakur really was and what it was that ultimately led to his untimely death. There was, was also this WWF side of Tupac yeah. where the, the big wrestling event, he was aware it wasn't Biggie and Puffy. I know that now. Right. I think we know now he, he had become such a great myth maker to be a great artist, to be an artist, period, I think you're, it comes with delusions. You're delusional. Yeah. And if you're fortunate, maybe a third of your delusions become art. Right. Two-thirds of it's bullshit. Yeah. And I think we saw Tupac's two-thirds of the delusions that weren't the art right. because he was a performance artist. I don't know how aware he was of the performance art. Tupac's life is like a struggle between activism and artist. Somewhere along the line, he chose to become a gangster. There's nothing more unartistic than a gangster. Yeah, right. And he lost himself to that last role he played, if that's the simple way to put it. So that's the kind of insight you can expect uh, in this not one, but two-part episode that we're doing to celebrate our entry into fall with Alan Hughes. But to be sure, part of the reason we decided to do not one part, but a two-part episode with Alan Hughes to celebrate all of our entries into the fall season was because there was a lot more to talk about with Alan than just the Tupac 
docuseries for FX. We wanted to really dig into Hughes's estimable career. All those movies that I mentioned earlier, we talk about Menace of Society and Book of Eli and a lot about the Defiant Ones and its influence and how it came together, the lives of Jimmy Iovine and Dr. Dre. We also have a discussion of the second project that Alan teased had taken over his life and he claimed would be the last two things he would ever do. I have my doubts about that, frankly, having gotten to know him a little bit, but we'll see. The second project is not a documentary, but a scripted project called What's Going On. It is, in fact, a biopic of Marvin Gaye, a project that many great filmmakers in Hollywood have wanted to make for a long time, where getting the rights to Marvin Gaye's music from Motown is not the easiest thing in the world. Alan Hughes has done that. There is a script. There is a movie waiting to be made. And as soon as the Tupac series has been dropped on the world, Alan Hughes moves on next year to getting into production and making the long-awaited, every music fan in the world wants to see the Marvin Gaye story brought to the big screen. It's a dramatic, a compelling, violent, drug-fueled, and ultimately beautiful and transcendent story that Alan and his collaborators are going to get to work on in this scripted feature film next year. We'll see where that goes, but I can tell you right now that the Alan Hughes treatment to a character as great and complex and seminal as Marvin Gaye, that will be something to see when he pulls it off. I don't even want to say if he pulls it off. I want to say when he pulls it off. What binds these two characters together, Marvin Gaye, Tupac Shakur, both influential, both complicated, both with a large streak of darkness within them, both capable of extraordinary powerful lyrics, extraordinarily powerful voices, both of them with their stories with much to say about both black and white culture in the second half of the 20th century. And ultimately, both stories illuminating in a pretty deep way of the kind of nature of art itself, the torment and the tumult that surrounds every pathbreaking, truly innovative artist. And all of that still wildly relevant many years after the deaths of both Marvin Gaye and Tupac Shakur. It also tells you something about why Alan Hughes is the perfect chronicler for both of those seminal figures in the history of music, whether he's doing it in scripted or unscripted form. You want to see what Alan Hughes is going to do with Tupac and with Marvin Gaye, because like both of those men, Alan Hughes is a brave and uncompromising artist who ultimately knows that the greatest works of art only come after the artist stares deep into the abyss, dives headlong into the crucible, and then emerges intact on the other side of the hell on high water. So we're here with Alan Hughes, the director of so many things, but in particular, first, Alan, we're going to talk about Dear Mama. And I want to start that conversation by going to the source of the title of the docuseries that you've got coming out on FX about Tupac Shakur and his mother, Afeni, a song that is in the pantheon of the greatest songs ever done in the genre of hip hop. That's widely regarded as his masterpiece, the song and the title of the series. Let's listen to a little of that. It's called Dear Mama. When I was young, me and my mama had beef, 17 years old, kicked out on the streets. Though back at the time, I never thought I'd see a face. Ain't a woman alive that could take my mama's place. Suspended from school, I'm scared to go home. I was a fool with the big boys breaking all the rules. Shed tears with my baby sister. Over the years, we was poor and other little kids. 
And even though we had different daddies, the same drama when things went wrong, we blame mama. I reminisce on the stress I caused. It was hell, hugging on my mama from a jail cell. So there it is, the song, Dear Mama, Alan Hughes, title of the doc, the aim is to be definitive. Tell us about it. Well, it wasn't called Dear Mama originally, yeah. you know, and I, I had to figure out why am I telling the story because I didn't want to do it And when the estate came to me. You know, me and Tupac had some difficulties towards the end. I want to get into that, but <laughs> like, how did the, the genesis of the project is was, what, and then we had up with Your Mama Steve McQueen, why. the great film director from the UK, yeah. and he was going to do a feature version of it. And for some reason or another, it didn't work out after a year. A feature doc. A feature doc. Yeah. You know, the family and the estate together approached me and I sat down with them and they asked me if I would do it. And I was thinking about Marvin Gaye. I go, I don't know. I don't know. And I didn't know too, because I, it's just too close. Not just the incident that he and I had, because we got past that, but it's too close for me, you know? And uh, I took a few days. I thought about it. I came back. I said, you know, I'll do it, but only if we can do the mother and son story. Cause I'm more interested in what this is with his mother as it relates to him right. and my mother being a mama's boy and me and Tupac connected and it was a subconscious thing, daddy issues, you know, passion and daddy issues right. and trauma, whatever. And my mother was a, a woman's activist and marched and was the head of her chapter now in ELA. Detroit. Yeah, you grew yep. up yeah, you in Michigan, Detroit. Yep. Yeah, yeah. yep. And, and then we got to California. She was the president of the rape crisis hotline. I mean, she was radical, you know, you can imagine. So I knew what activism was about. I knew it was a single mother that's that strong minded. I said, this should be Tupac's love note to his mother. And this is my love note to my mother, dear mama. You know? Yeah. Just to set the table here, right? Mm -hmm. I'll say two things. One, you've been doing this for like for three years now? Coming up on three years when it gets released in the fall. And and when we first started talking about this, I said, what are you working on? You're like, I'm doing this mm -hmm. Tupac thing. And then I'm also doing this Marvin Gaye biopic. And I was like, okay, so this will take 10 years. And, <laughs> yeah, and when you funny. finish, you'll be done. Yeah. Because if you do those right, yeah, yeah. they're like, what else do you do? What the fuck do you follow up that with, right? Yep. And we'll talk about both of them today. Mm -hmm. You know, there's been a lot of shit done on Tupac, right? First of all, you guys are blessed because he did a lot of interviews. He was on television all the time. Just tons of Tupac. <laughs> blessed and cursed, right? That's right. But there's a lot of Tupac talking in a lot of different places. And there's a lot of stuff done about him. Lots of docs done. Millions of magazine articles, all that stuff. Fenny's his mom, who is a revolutionary, mm -hmm. Black Panther, mm -hmm. indicted, did acts of criminal violence on behalf of the Black Panthers. Right? Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> accused by law enforcement having done those things, right? And she was pretty radical. Yeah. Probably more radical. Oh, no doubt. Oh, a little more radical even than your mom, right? Mm -hmm. Talk about that. It seems like what you're saying is like the thing you can do that's different is do the mother-son story. That's what this is about, right? Yeah, that that's definitely my end. His mother was so precocious, I would say. And so ahead of her time, as far as the way she thought about the world and cultures and this whole misnomer that the Black Panthers or any black revolutionaries were like kill Whitey, all that. Fannie was not about that. Like she was very inclusive. That organization was very inclusive. And she experienced something outside of her ghetto life, let's say. Right. Glow later, her sister says in the documentary, she says she was a wanderer and a wanderer. Yes. And I love that. Yeah. And my mom was that. My heroes, all of them have that about them. Bruce Lee being one of them. You want something beyond your experience. And then once you get beyond your experience, you want to blend that culture and, and that martial art and that martial art, whatever it is. Afeni had that. Tupac had it as well. And I was just taken with what an authentic black woman she was from the South. She didn't have the long, wavy hair, the Beyonce complexion. She was very authentic. I think her brain was just too active and her ambitions to learn 
reminded me of my mother and, and myself, you know, as far as like wanting more and not just wanting more education, wanting a better life and then losing yourself in the struggle of that revolution, that lost war and her becoming a, an addict because none of it worked out. You so know? just say a little bit about this history with you and Tupac just before we talk a little more about him and his mom, because he was going to be in Menace Society. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about Menace Society a little mm-hmm. more in a minute, but you were, he was going to be in it and then you guys fired him. Mm-hmm. What's the story there? Well, How is that, was the, this is not a beef. This is the kind of thing that people don't understand. You guys had conflict with Pac, right? Over time. Out of a friendship, though. Yes. Uh, well, that's yeah. what I mean. That's what yeah. I'm trying to get to is like, this is a labor of love on this movie. So oh, yeah. So yeah, just yeah. talk about the history there a little bit. First of all, you can't be close to your, if someone's like your brother or you have that dynamic best friend and everyone of his family member says, if you didn't fight with Tupac, then you didn't know Tupac yeah. and you didn't love Tupac, right? So met him when we were up meeting Digital Underground at 19 for our first music video. Met him when he was supposedly nobody. He hadn't had a record out. Right. Juice hadn't come out. At a Waffle House with all the digital underground. And I just remember going, who the fuck is this dude? He was so funny, so charismatic. He had it. it. He chose us. He came looking for me and my brother. He told me in the bathroom that day that he wanted us to direct his first music video. And I'm like, what music? I didn't know he even had a cut to. We did his first music video, his second music video, his third music video. That year, year 1991? Brenda's Got a Baby was the breakout for him and us right. as a film. And... And that, in fact, Brenda's Got a Baby was the thing that New Line Cinema had to watch to even greenlight our film to see if we had the chops to right. direct. Yeah. So I went to Tupac and said, we have this script we're selling because we were very close to time. I used to pick him up at the Burbank Airport every time he came from Oakland. And keep in mind, he was 19 and we were 19. Yeah. So this totally. is already an unusual experience we're having as far as him blowing up as an artist and we're starting to blow up as filmmakers. I remember him telling me this. He agrees to do the character of Sharif in Menace, which was the reformed Muslim. He's not gangbanging. And he's kind of like a third character. And he says, I got to tell you something, because he was in pre-production on Poetic Justice with John Singleton starring Janet Jackson. He goes, Alan, I'm not starring in anyone's film. I'll do this part for you guys to help you guys. But me and John have agreed that we're going to be like Scorsese and De Niro. That's the only person I'm starring in. I I was a little heartbroken because I was like, wow, I thought we had that. Connection. That connection. Yeah. And clearly he was moving on to his next father figure and his journey of his eternal search for father figures. As I said, John would have liked been like a three or four years older. Yes. Not that much older. Yeah. Like, he was only like, three or four like years. 24 years old. That's right. right. Yeah. But he's like father. dad at the yeah, time. Yeah, sure. Sure. <laughs> anyway, you know, we started the process of rehearsals. I'll make a long story short. He just was incredibly disruptive and volatile. We knew, even when we started shooting Brennan's Got Baby, the second music video, he was having a hard time adjusting to, to fame initially, or at all, you know. He always came across like, either he's all the way up and the most charismatic guy in the world, or like Darth Vader, like the whole thing is just dark. I saw that starting as his fame started to grow, I started seeing him grappling with those issues. And anyway, it got to a point where it was just tough. Every rehearsal, it was like Denzel at the end of training day. That's what it would become with yeah. him, you know? Yeah. And I called him. He said, talk to my manager. And I was like, all right, well. Ended up having to go to the Glen Gary Glenn Ross premiere where Bob Shea and Michael DeLuca were the heads of New Line and saying, we got to let this guy go. Yeah. Still have the termination letter because he was making a lot of money per week. It was a great deal. I think also he had found the theme he was looking for, the character he was looking for in Bishop. Right. And in this thug life thing, this is probably a little bit before thug life. Yeah. And I think that it dawned on him that he did not want to play this role either. Right, right. In a film full of gangsters, you know. 
So he gets killed in 96. What was your relationship like by then? Unfortunately, we weren't communicating. Right. And that's the one thing I've learned. One of my biggest regrets is that I didn't go see him when he was in prison, even though the last time I saw him was with 10 Crips and they were all beating me up. Right. So, But he did apologize in print later. Well, that's, you know. a, that's a story. Uh, yeah. So I wish, you know, in hindsight now, I wish I would have gone and saw him when he was in, in Clinton yeah. and Danamora. Now, through the journey of making this film, I realized that there was probably some, I don't want to say trauma, but something happened when he had all those guys attack me. Yeah. I'm always checking my corners anyway, but I was always that guy. I'm not going to be in this situation. What was the circumstance that led to that? The attack that is? The attack, it, the circumstances were there was a music video being shot for the soundtrack in Menace Society before it came out. It was a Spice One gangster rap music video for the soundtrack yeah. that I was producing. I came with a friend and my brother, and we're driving on the set. He had already said on MTV he was looking for us. You know, so I was kind of prepared. And I saw him on the corner with like, it looked like 15 guys with 40 ounces of weed. It was already plied. And yeah. the runway had been foamed and I... I got out of the car and he confronted me and, and, and it turned into, I don't want to get to the long story, but it got physical with he and I. I didn't throw the first punch, let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah. But by the time I had come to my senses, he was in a very compromised position. And that's when I felt 10, 12, I don't know how many guys it was. Um, and Raging Bull, it was just brutal. Yeah. It was brutal. It was one of those moments in my life where I was like, damn, the good news is I can't feel anything. I just feel my body moving. <laughs> the bad news is this might be it. Right. That's how dangerous it was. Right, right. So it's a lot to process there, right? As you oh, think yeah. about, I mean, this series, three years, mm-hmm. tons of archival footage, interviews with all of his family, interviews with all of his friends, all of that shit, his meaning in the culture, which is a whole other thing that, mm-hmm. that makes the series relevant and what your vision for that is. But just at the totally personal level, that's a lot of shit to process. Mm. I mean, this is like compli- a complicated, fucked up relationship, which involves some trauma mm-hmm. inflicted on you. Like mm-hmm. getting through all that, I can't imagine like this would be not a potentially incredibly cleansing <laughs> experience, <laughs> yeah. but also yeah. potentially traumatic experience. Yeah. Like a lot yeah. of different things you're going through, I would imagine making this. Yeah, it's funny on, on the Defiant Ones, the doc I did right before I did this one. And Easy e was my, I don't like the word mentor, but it was like my first godfather I learned before I met Tupac. And I just remember on Defiant Ones, it was just chilling to f- go find all this footage that me and my brother had shot on NWA and Eazy-E. I just remember going, fuck, I never processed his death. And he was a real large figure in my life in, in the formative stages of my filmmaking career with my brother. And then the, came the Tupac and Defiant Ones. And I remember that feeling too, going, oh, shit, this is, I hadn't processed, I hadn't processed any of it, you know, yeah. because we've got to remember we were 1920. He blew up as a rap artist and a movie star at the time. And we were fortunate enough. I remember being at Cannes Film Festival with Menace shortly after that attack. Yeah. And Roger Ebert coming up and going, hey, you know, me and Gene, you know, you're like, what the fuck? <laughs> I remember you guys reviewing Scarface, like, yeah. and just being the toast of the town in Cannes. So there's the, all that shit that happened with him with the physical thing. But then there's this thing he's experiencing, we're experiencing, that 19-year-olds, 20-year-olds, yeah. especially black rarely experience, you know, so yeah. I, I, it, I don't know if I've still processed it. It's, you know? it's fascinating. And this will be a whole other thing. I'm like watching the Beatles doc, um, the Peter Jackson thing. Just look at those guys. No one has ever experienced the level of fame ever in history that they have. And the, the complexity of it is they're 26. It's crazy. And, you're, and you're like, 
you guys have lived a hundred thousand lifetimes and experienced stuff that no one had ever experienced before and has never experienced since. And you're 26 trying to navigate like, are we going to stay together? Are we a family? Are we breaking up? Do we love each other? Do we hate each other? Are, we're trying to also make an album on deadline. All of it is incredibly stressful in a way to watch and beautiful. You can't really even process That's it, right. right? What it would be like at that age. I'm still barely like able to function. But at 26, it. I was like, you know, where are my food? Where are my weed? <laughs> right. Like, you know, I was like, that's all I can really do is try to get through every day, you know, mm-hmm. get the shit I need. So you're kind of like doing that. That's a, a real psychic journey for you, right? There's a high school interview with him. He was living in Marin County mm-hmm. in Marin City, which is, of course, this one ghetto enclave in the middle of like this incredibly rich white Mm -hmm. neighborhood. I love the fact that the housing project called tall buildings. Like that's, that's, that's how much creativity they put into naming the housing. They're just, it's the tall buildings, right? And there's an interview with him at Tallapais high, which is like kind of basically white upper middle class high school. That's right. There are a couple different clips where he talks about his mom. And one that I want to play relates to the poverty thing. And and this is not from your thing. This is the actual interview. So we can talk about a little bit more about pocket and Fenny. That's the only thing that I'm bitter about. Is growing up poor because I missed out on a lot of things. Still growing up poor, you know, I miss out on a lot of things and I can't always have what I want or even things that I think I need. So I missed a lot of things like that. But I know rich people or people just well off who are lost or lost. So I feel like my mother made that made a lot of decisions in her life. And that's what we always say. Um, she could have chose to go to college and got a degree in something and right now been well off, but she chose to um, analyze society and fight and do things better. So this is the payoff. And she's always tells me that the payoff to her is that me and my sister grew up good and we have good minds and everything and we can, we're, we're ready for society. There's several things to say about this, right? One, he went to high school performing arts. If you go back and watch the music videos, he moves like a dancer, right? Mm-hmm. He's not like, the guys in NWA. He's like a ballet dancer, right? Mm-hmm. And that comes from training. He speaks with a degree of, of, of vocabulary and articulate of, of an educated kid, right? Mm-hmm. Number one. He's talking about being poor, which he obviously also was. And in your film, someone talks about how he, he had the worst shoes. Everybody was poor, but his shoes were so bad that people would be like, Tupac, leave your fucking shoes outside. You can't bring those fucking shoes in here, right? Mm-hmm. So the relationship with his mother, I mean, I, I want you to talk about what you think it is because it's complicated. He's obviously angry that some of the choices she made leave him worse off. He also mm-hmm. obviously really admires her. Dear Mama is a great expression of that, right? And the thing you cited before, the line about when you were a crack fiend, you were a black queen. First of all, you can find an amazing amount of literature written about the brilliance of that song. Mm-hmm. It's in the permanent collection of the Library of Congress, that song. And I think probably that line is the reason it's in. Mm-hmm. There's scholarship on that mm-hmm. line as a kind of expression that has long history and got in, in, mm-hmm. in the history of music, that kind of a mother song, but that's a particular kind of brilliant expression of it and of the paradox and the ambivalence, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I, that's a long setup to say, talk about their relationship and what you know about it now, having gone deep on it. One thing I want to say about him to this day, when you think of hip hop, you don't hear anyone doing Brenda's Got a Baby. You don't hear anyone do, doing Dear Mama. Mama. No, no, uh, no. Keep your head up. All those type of songs he did. And when he said, even though you were a crack fiend mama, you was always a black queen mama. How incredibly like raw, it's kind of sonotic, reminds me of what made Richard Pryor so great. Yes. You know, yes. the vulnerability yes. and the fallibility is just are right out there in the open. And, and he's somehow aware that it's a good thing and he's not exposing. I don't know, like, especially in the, in the black culture, black men and that whole, what we now call toxic masculinity that exists in all the cultures. But when I think of his mother, 
I think of two things. First of all, they were more like brother and sister, you know, in one respect. Right. And the, the bickering, you know, and that type of thing. Something that my mother and his mother had in common that can be incredibly damaging when someone is, um, when I say my mother's a radical feminist and Tupac's mother's a radical revolutionary. You come home, those mothers are 20, talk about 21, 22, 23, 24, 25. My mother would come home from day out in the rape crisis hotline and the shit she would say about men fucked us up. Yeah. I mean, I now know like it really fucked us up because she was radical. So we had hate for men ourselves. Yeah, you and, and, your, you and your brother. Yeah. And I can imagine a Faney coming home and the shit she was saying about society, true or not, but for a young mind, it can be incredibly damaging too, you know, because there's a story that's not in the film. When Tupac was eight, his assignment that day in New York, or whatever borough they were in at the time, because they were always moving, was to sit on the stoop and watch out for FBI agents because that whole thing was being brought down by the COINTELPRO. Yeah. And there were agents everywhere tearing that organization apart, the Black Panthers. Yeah. And at eight years old, I, I guess he blew his assignment, John, because he's a kid. Yeah. <laughs> he fucked up and there was a fed that he didn't see and something happened. Yeah. And I can't remember what the punishment was, but it was fucked up. It was fucked up. And I think that there is a love. I'm not going to say hate because I think Tupac had a lot of resentment towards Afeni because of the displacement issues. They were always moving. And maybe in his, early in his childhood, there was some addiction issues that weren't as severe as they were later. Yeah. So I think he had a deep affection for his mother and love. But also, she wasn't there a lot in his adolescence, not right. because of addiction, right. but because she was out in the road trying to get Geronimo Pratt out of prison or speaking at this yeah. engagement. So it's like having a, a single mother being a political figure yeah. who's not quite as disciplined as maybe a politician. And I use that loosely because some politicians aren't very dis disciplined right. when it comes to the home. So I say all that to say that I think it was complex. I don't think it, anyone can relate to that dynamic unless you are a child of a re revolutionary or an activist that is active out there, but also dealing with your own trauma. And like I said, when it comes back to my mother, my brother and I did this documentary called American Pimp. And everyone would go, oh, you guys are trying to figure out what was up with your father. I go, no. I think we're trying to cleanse ourselves of that shit that happened with our mother. Yeah. And I think Tupac was, that's why you see that duality in him too. Cause it's like his mother raised him to be conscious, almost a socialist consciousness about the community and the true sense of communism, everyone communing and everyone being equal and to see him lose himself ultimately to the excesses of a capitalist society and the excesses of a rock star must've, tore her apart and right. I can imagine it was tearing him apart. You know? Well, it's, and, and one of the things we were talking about the other day, we'll talk about the defiant ones in a little while, but the contrast between Jimmy and Dre, they're capitalists, right? They're moguls. That's what they are. No, they're, no, there's the you know, arch capitalists. There's no difference, <laughs> no, not that much difference between Jimmy and Dre and Mark Zuckerberg, yeah. Elon Musk, Warren Buffett. They're empire building, cash hoarding, dollar making motherfuckers, mm -hmm. right? Then great. All, all, I say that with, with, with respect, but you told the story of two capitalists and, mm -hmm. and divine ones. This is a story of two socialists. Absolutely. Right? Yes. And so talk about that, about the psychic relationship that Tupac had with his mother. He took the politics out initially, and you see it in some of these high school interviews, whether he knows that he's fully understands what socialism is or <laughs> could Courtney Marks to you. But he's, but he's a socialist, right? Yeah, yeah. But then, as you said a second yeah. ago, he gets eaten by the excess of the capitalism. Yeah. So he, talk yeah. about that. You see, John, it's got to be tragic because in our film, you literally can feel it and see it happening. And it feels like real time where that struggle is real. Poverty. Poverty. 
poverty is a motherfucker, like abject poverty. It doesn't matter how much she put in his brain about these concepts of socialism in its most positive form. Once you get your first gold chain in the era we grew up in, uh, I remember telling my mother in, in 84, my friends are coming on with Adidas suits and, you know, we come from welfare as well. By this time, my mother was successful. I can relate with what Tupac was going to. In yeah. hip-hop culture, gold, jewelry, Adidas track suits, shell-toe, whatever the fuck it was. Yeah, yeah. If you didn't have money, so it's as a, a kid. All that Versace shit. All that, <laughs> that, Versace, that whole like a Versace lifestyle, right? That's right. You're talking about in the Run DMC era, even before the sure, Versace. Sure, 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 sure. You know, even the, just to have the boombox, we can all relate to it. In the neighborhood, we all know the drug dealers had the car out here in California, the gold dating rims and the everything. I'm looking now and seeing his journey, and I go, when you come from abject poverty, that's the Achilles heel. Because at the end of the day, as far as like success, you'll see in a meaningful way also, he has a deep yearning to take care of his family, take care of his mother, because there was none of that going on. All those revolutionary men, they were supposed to be there for a fainting, broke her heart because they bailed on her. Yeah. They, they abandoned her. So he felt that as well. Like, I got to take care of my mother. I got to take care of my aunt Glow. I got to take care of my family. My mother... And I keep bringing it back to both mothers because it's how I can only see it. My mother, even when she came into her wealth, always maintained, and my mother is a capitalist, <laughs> maintained, you guys, I'm not going to buy you track suits or gold chains. But if you want a camera, equipment, or if you're playing electric guitar, she would always invest in the arts. So we learned that balance early. Yeah, I think Tupac not even having that option if, if he wanted to play the flute or clarinet, not being able to afford that. He says that in the movie. Yeah, I think that's what he fell victim to, that, that desire to have that stuff, you know. And with that, uh, it's time for us to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Alan Hughes on Hell and High Water. Welcome back to Hell and High Water. We're going to start here with a little Tupac Shakur sound from the early 1990s, a TV interview that Pac did about a character already well-known in American life back in the early 1990s, someone who was a figure admired by some, mocked by others, a guy who would go on to be far better known and far more beloved and also far more detested in the years after Tupac's death, and a character who has always actually loomed kind of large in the hip-hop imagination. That man... Donald Trump. Let's hear what Tupac Shakur had to say about him. This world is such a, um, and when I say this world, I mean it. I don't mean in an ideal sense. I mean in uh, every day, every little thing you do. It's such a, gimme, gimme, gimme. Everybody back off. You know, everybody's like, you taught that from school, everywhere, big business. You want to be successful? You want to be like Trump? Gimme, gimme, gimme. Push, 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 push. Step, step, step. Crush, crush, crush. That's how it all is. And it's like, nobody ever stopped. Just, you know, I feel like, Instead of us just being like, slavery's bad, slavery's down, bad whitey, bad whitey. I mean, all right, let's stop that. And everybody's smart enough to know that, I mean, we've been slighted and we want ours. And I don't mean by like uh, ours, 40 acres and a mule, because we passed that. But we need help. I mean, for us to be on our own two feet, us meaning youth or us meaning black people, whatever you want to take it for. For us to be on our own two feet, we do need help. You watch him there in the vernacular, right? Mm -hmm. That analysis of American capitalism. I mean, it's post-80s, which is important, right? And I think it's actually one of the things that's in the film that I think is interesting. And he says this thing about how, I'm going to paraphrase, he's like, well, you know, why do they teach me German? I'm never going to need to know German. He's trying to argue for a different curriculum. Like, there should be a black curriculum and a poor curriculum because they're teaching me stuff like German I'm never going to use. And more broadly, 
they're preparing me for this fantasy world mm -hmm. that I'm never going to get to. That's not real for me. And it's this is 1988 or so, right? So that's it's right. like height of the Reagan boom, Wall Street era, the beginning of the stuff that we now see on steroids, right? Mm -hmm. And he's basically diagnosing it and why it's a ridiculous thing for anybody mm -hmm. to impart a bunch of tools that he's never going to need to use or have an opportunity to use. Now, as it turns out... He gets into the fantasy world in a way, I mean, it turns out to be a dark fantasy, but it's a fantasy world that no one else had access to. And it's interesting just to hear that. And you're laying down all this stuff, which is going to lead us to why this is still relevant today. Right. But in right. that moment, he's basically like, everybody's grabbing for shit. We all need help. Trump is fucked up. The whole thing, right? And then, you know, within a couple years, he's... Mr. Versace culture, right. and he's doing videos with Snoop that are all about fucking bling. It's just mm -hmm. all about that. First of all, Fetty is watching this happening, as you said a second ago. Mm -hmm. I mean, on some level, I understand what's going on. Mm -hmm. He gets money, right? But like, what do you think that does to him as he goes from that kid who's the child of Black Panther, who's doing that kind of like socialist analysis mm -hmm. on the American economy mm -hmm. to suddenly being just as indulgent and as much the avatar of the kind of materialist excesses as anybody in the rap game? Mm -hmm. I think he was having a hard time with it. I think that prison exacerbated it. Yeah. And that was the one deep dive I wanted to do was to figure out what was going on. He was married when he was in prison to a woman we've never heard of, basically. And that was about 10, 11 months. He has friends that would see him every day in prison, but no one has ever went in and figured out what was going on mentally with him when he was in prison. You see it uh, in these depositions they're doing about the Texas state trooper shooting, killing, that somebody listened to his music and shot a cop right. or whatever, right? They're doing these depositions in 94 when he's in prison. It's a side of Tupac you've never seen. He's calm. He's present. He's not hectic. But there was also this WWF side of Tupac yeah. where the, the big wrestling event, he was aware it wasn't Biggie and Puffy. I know that now. Right. I think we know now he, he had become such a great myth maker. To be a great artist, to be an artist, period, I think you're, it comes with delusions. You're delusional. Yeah. And if you're fortunate, maybe a third of your delusions become art. Right. Two-thirds of it's bullshit. Yeah. And I think we saw Tupac's two-thirds of the delusions that weren't the art right. because he was a performance artist. I don't know how aware he was of the performance art. Right. He became what my partner, Lasse, who you'll meet later, my co-writer and, and editor, he says, Tupac's life is like, struggle between activism and artist. This is what that five years was about. Yeah. Somewhere along the line, he chose to become a gangster. There's nothing more unartistic than a gangster. Yeah, right. It's as far away from the arts as you can get. The mentality, the lifestyle, whatever, and it includes everything you just outlined. Yeah. All the trinkets, the excesses, the womanizing, whatever. So in his myth-making, in that artistic delusion, I think now it's performance art that he's unaware of, and he lost himself to that last role he played, if that's the simple way to put it. I want to play this VMAs thing because it just blew me away when I watched it this morning. So play this thing and we'll look at it. You lost Best Rap Video. You all disappointed about that? Oh, no, I didn't lose, see, because I sold six and a half million copies. So won. I won. We always felt like we're being true to everything we've always stayed exactly. representing. And our audience is worldwide. We're not even on no... You know, we coming out here and there's some East Coast, West Coast. We got beef with the people we got beef with. But we could go anywhere in the country because we are America's most wanted. Exactly. So you can't stop the flow. Can't stop what America wants. Um, right. On that note, I know that Biggie and Puffy are here tonight. 
Um, did you see them? Do you have anything to say to them at all? Nah, but if we even if we saw them, we not we are businessmen. We are not animals. It's not like we're gonna see them and rush them and jump on them. If they they see us and they want drama, we're gonna definitely bring it like only Dev Row could bring it. But we here as businessmen to enjoy and, 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 and support the and video, support music, the video awards. music awards for MTV because they support us. So if they want to come and use this business opportunity to get on some gangster, you know we do that better than anybody. Can you envision a day when you know? Y'all, if not, get together and make an album, just peace, peacefully coexist. There's no dream of making an album with Biggie and Puffy or none of them. We're not sweating it like that. This is our we, family We peacefully here. coexist right That's now because right. we all cool. Everybody's here. Everybody's, they, make, they sell records. We sell records. Well, I guess you could call that selling records, what they do. We sell large amounts of records, and they sell a few records. And really, there's no, there's no competition. So Pac doesn't win video of the year. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Coolio says that it gives a kind of a prophetic speech talking about people dying young. This is the middle of the beef between East Coast and West Coast. Mm -hmm. And it's really the death row crew on the West Coast out here, mm -hmm. of whom Pac is now part of, Suge Knight, Dre, all those people. On the other side, Biggie and Puffy, mm -hmm. right? And as you look back on it now, it's fucking ridiculous. Oh the whole God. fucking thing is ridiculous. I mean, obviously it was serious. People got killed. I just can't believe that like West Coast versus East Coast rap styles, these guys ended up, you know, and obviously it has a lot to do with the culture and some of the fucked up stuff about it, right? But at the end of this, this sequence, you've got backstage footage of Pac and Snoop who've just done work together. Right? And Pac is basically saying, I don't care that we didn't win. It's fine. My video's on MTV. It's in rotation. It's all cool. If it's not on rotation on MTV, I don't care. I don't really care. It's all fine. We, we love the other artists. Everybody's fine. Everybody can celebrate. It's all good. I'm making money. Everything's great. Everything's great. Everything's great. And you're like, you're fronting. Like, mm -hmm. you're scared. And mm -hmm. you can see that he's scared. And Snoop is just as scared, but he can't speak. Mm -hmm. He's sitting there silently, mm -hmm. just like, looks like he's seen a ghost. That's right. right. And you have him in the interview. He was like, I wanted to work with Biggie. And I thought Biggie was fucking dope. Like, mm -hmm. I wanted to work with Biggie. And they go to the airport the next day to fly home. And Suge Knight says, I've taken your security away. And just tell the story of they're on the, this private plane. Pac and, and Snoop are on the plane. And what happens on the plane? So, yeah, Suge says to him before he gets to the plane, yeah, you can come back with us. To Snoop. To Snoop. Because Snoop was on the radio the next day saying he didn't really care about this fight anymore and he was happy to work with Biggie. And, yeah, so and Tupac and Suge, now Snoop is the enemy. Right. Because he wants to make peace. Right. And as they're boarding the plane from the VMAs to return to California, because those two got to go to the Mike Tyson fight. Right. The Mike Tyson fight. Yeah. Snoop gets in the plane and he tries another gesture towards Tupac to go, hey, man, you know, and Tupac just like pushes him away, pushes him away. So Snoop being the real street guy of all of these guys, by the way, let's just point that out. Yeah. And probably one of the most intelligent sages I've ever known in my life just has that type of Muhammad Ali energy. Wisely walks to the back, as he says it, to the plane, finds a fork and a knife and a blanket. And the back is by the bathroom. No one wants to be by the bathroom right. on a private plane. Yeah. And he lays down for five hours with a fork and a knife covered by a blanket waiting for that jump off. With one eye open. With one eye he open. He says, with one eye open. I sat there for five right. hours like this with one, one eye, eye open. open. He's talking about the Tyson fight. And he eventually, he's like, I just decided that that was my sign that I shouldn't go. Yeah, because he was right? going to go with them. That. And and he, he saw that they, being Suge and Tupac, were upset with him because he wanted peace right. with Biggie and, and, Puff. and Puff. And he said the only reason why he wasn't in that caravan in Vegas is because of that. So street smart, Snoop, you know, ends up alive. Pac ends up dead. Biggie ends up dead. A bunch of people end up dead. What's your analysis 
in that moment, two scared kids in the middle of a ridiculous feud that's actually deadly serious. One of them is like, he's got what he needs. Like Snoop's like got what he needs. He's mm-hmm. like, that's what that's about on some level, right? Which is I I can work with those guys. I don't I don't need this beef. This fucking ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And the other one is something else. They're both scared. Mm-hmm. They're acting in different ways. And one of them is seems to me like it's kind of in touch with this fear in a way that leads to his self-preservation. The other one yeah, isn't. Absolutely. But what's the difference between those two guys? Because we said this before. They're both come from poverty. They're mm-hmm. not that different mm-hmm. in terms of their background. They have biographical mm-hmm. detail differences, but it's not like one of them's rich and the other one's not. They both come from severely disadvantaged backgrounds. What's the difference between those two that makes one the kind of artist that Snoop is and the person that Snoop was mm-hmm. that moment and what's and, and the other that leads to Pac? I think it directly goes back, several things, it directly goes back to my assessment of gangster. A gangster is the farthest thing from an artist as humanly possible you can be. That is Snoop's resting pulse, that mentality. He understood having just beat a murder charge, yeah. having just a year prior or six months prior, beating a murder trial, and where he comes from in Long Beach and the work he put in and the work that got put in on him and his homeboys, most of them who aren't here, he absolutely understands the gravity of the moment, that he can feel it. He knows what it is because he's a street cat. Tupac, on the other hand, while he came up in the inner city or urban fucked up ghetto, he's not a street kid. He's an artist and an activist. And he's a performing arts kid. Yeah. And he's delusional. He's just delusional. Not just in the pejorative way, in the positive way. You have to be delusional to be a great artist. But you should know when to hit that switch. The lights went out where the switch was. He could not find that switch. And... The thing I think Tupac was addicted the most to when I think back was when he's in a room like this and he sees us all reacting to whatever he's saying, especially her, (laughs) any woman. Yeah. If they're smiling, he goes to 10. You thought 10 was the level. He's at 50 now. And he's so charismatic that he he lost himself in his power to move a room. And, And he's playing that role, like I said. I don't even know how aware he was that he was playing that role. Yeah. You know, just a very quick question for a long time. The mystery of what happened to Pac, like that's millions of stories have been read about, like what actually happened in Vegas and, you know, who was really responsible. Do you think there's a mystery about it? Hell no. There's no mystery. Hell no. I was watching something on um, JFK. They were like, we'd like to Camelot. The fuck got shot. Right. But but one dude, I don't know if there was two. So what? It was two dudes. You know, Tupac was even more. uh, Let's back up for a second. You look at the and I'm not saying this enough in any kind of way, but like the performance artist he was ultimately and the myth maker he was, there's ingredients you pick up along the way. You know, you look at what Kurt Cobain did and you see that he's obsessed with Bruce Lee. Like I'm obsessed with Bruce Lee. You see the icon of that, the shirt off the whatever he's taking all this stuff in. When we think about Vegas and you think about all the famous legendary crazy crime that had been committed throughout the history of Vegas movies made on Vegas. What's the most famous murder? The most famous murder. In Vegas. In Vegas. Tupac. Well, yes. Okay. I, was, I, was, I, was, I think I was like trying to search for what the other one would be. Yeah. But we can go. I mean, if we think about it. Yeah. They're all Italian guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jewish guys. Like mob mob, heads. <laughs> mob yeah. guys. Yeah, yeah, There's mob. been 50 movies made about yeah, it. Yeah, like, yeah. Beyond mythical. Books right. beyond mythical, right? The most famous murder and, and biggest, what do you call it, conspiracy uh, theories involve a little black boy from the Bronx yeah. named Tupac Shakur, yeah. right? I say that to say this, I don't think he knew he was going to be murdered that right. weekend, yeah. but I know, this is just me, I'm not going to go with anyone, 
when you walked over or ran over to that killer, yeah. that known shooter, yeah. and did that, and then left, and then thought you can go to a club afterwards. No, that guy got with his guys and came back and got you guys. Yeah. Over and out. Right. And whether the police, in the case of MLK and so many others, Malcolm X was like, hey, this weekend, let's just fall back yeah, and yeah, let yeah. things take place. Now, I believe in that type of shit. Yeah. That shit goes on all the time, yeah. right? Fall back. Right. 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 But it's that simple. It's that simple. It's and that by simple. the way, I, I got to tell you, and I don't want to rat anyone here, but I talk to all the guys. I'm talking about the artists, the hip hop artists, yeah. some of the guys we mentioned, yeah. some of the guys that were there yeah. on all sides, too. Excuse me. There's never been a mystery about who killed Tupac. Shug's the devil, right? I mean, you know, I got I to gotta go back for a second, too, John. I mean, right? I mean, there, seriously, there, no, is no, there no, anybody who even holds a candle in terms of, like, the fucking dark heart of evil than to show? I, I don't know if anyone said this because everyone tries to, like, polish it up and go, you know, he was a real smart businessman. He was a real smart. He's dumb as fuck. Let's just call it what it is. When you see him talk and you see the moves he made yeah. and what he had, that's just dumb. Yeah. It's just dumb. But let's go back. I can't remember the journalist who said this. Back in the Motown era, you never had the Four Tops beefing with the Temptations. And there was never that type of thing. Yeah. You know, hip hop comes from the streets. And in the 90s, what happened was the streets really started permeating into the executive suites now and, yeah. and the actual studio. And when you start having these beefs and you start talking about, yo, fuck your hood and fuck your mama. I mean, you know, back in the India, in NWA days, even Easy e was aware of the WWF of it all. Yeah. And they played yeah. that game, but no one got hurt. Right. You know, I think when you look at the power of Tupac, I never met anyone who could talk shit that well. I mean, I mean, he would in person when he was roasting someone, you're like, people would be in tears. So I remember Jimmy Iovine, because I had a record, uh, full disclosure, I had a record deal in 96 on the Interscope. Dre had just left Death Row, but Death Row was still, and Tupac was still alive. So Jimmy Iovine one day, he always played me any music, No Diggity before, No Diggity came out, whatever, and you would just weigh in. He plays me this track, Hit Him Up, like a month before it comes out. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, shit. Now I can tell you, John, what I'm getting ready to say in the moment, I've now processed what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, oh, shit, man. He goes, what do you think? What do you think? I said, I'll tell you what I think. Tupac and or Suge will be dead in less than six months. Why do you say that? Why do you say that? I didn't even have an answer. Tupac was dead four months later, yeah. right? Now I look back and I go, the, the corny example, but like the power of the force. When Anakin skipped those steps, yeah. he still had the power. Yeah. He still had the power. Yeah. Tupac was the most passionate, charismatic, funny absurd, obscene, beautiful, dynamic, like shit talker I've ever seen. Muhammad Ali comes to mind, right? Yeah. But Muhammad Ali wasn't mean except to Joe Frazier, which that was fucked up, Muhammad Ali. <laughs> right? And when I heard that hit him up, I said, damn, my line's been crossed. Not only the line's been crossed because you're talking about fucking people's wives. Yeah. But you can hear the Hennessy. You can hear the weed. Yeah. You, can hear, you can hear the chicken wings. You can hear the ghetto. You can hear the, pardon me for going. Yeah, 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 it's okay. Tupac, similar to Frank Sinatra, you know this, Frank would go in and lay down three takes of the whole song right. and go, let's commit to a take. He wouldn't punch. Right. That's what Tupac would do. He would punch his little yell outs and screams, but it was one performance. And when you hear him, getting hot in the motherfucker, you're like, oh shit. Like, had you ever heard anyone rage on a track like that in hip hop? And hip hop is a rageful genre, right? Yeah. You, you hear the power of this kid. And you go, that shit is fucking all the way real. Anyone he's talking about right now. Gonna hear it's real. 
They're going to know it's real, and they're going to take it like that. That had never been done. That had never been done. We're going to take one more break, and then we'll be back with Alan Hughes on Hell and High Water right after these messages. And we're back with Alan Hughes here on Hell and High Water. So here's the question, if you are a fan of this music, and who isn't now, right? He's in the anybody's top five of, of all the greatest people have ever done this. Everybody, there's no one who doesn't put him in their top five, right? That's right. As an artist, number one. Number two, the circumstances that we just described, the beef, the, the thing that ended the light of his life, it's fucking ridiculous. If, with any benefit of hindsight, you're like, what the fuck were these people thinking? Like, right. what what the fuck? And you just gave a good explanation for why that wasn't that moment. But with the further away from me, yeah, the more ridiculous that it seems, mm-hmm. right? But people still really care about Tupac, mm-hmm. right? They care about him. And... Your contention is that not only is he still relevant, resonant enough to like that people want to watch five hours of this mm-hmm. or more, but also that there's stuff in this story that maps to the shit we're going through right now relative to race, mm-hmm. culture, division, right? So just talk about what your aspiration is, A, why that resonance opens the door mm-hmm. to making people still care enough that you can then make people see things in this story that actually matter today and what those things are. Like, that's where the aspiration of this goes, because you're not interested in making no. just a biographical no. story, but that there's shit in here that's like speaks to the present. You said a funny thing to me in text the other night where you're like, I'm not going to do any corny cutaways of BLM and mm-hmm. George Floyd. But the point of all this is to be speaking to stuff that is right now. Yeah, absolutely. And to have the ability to speak to the times, but be timeless in it, in that eternal struggle of equality, obviously, right? Globally, that was, as you saw in the piece, why Athene named him Tupac. Yeah. But I'll ask you this question, John. Like, when you go around the world, around the world, let's just cut back to five years ago. You see his image everywhere. In Africa, in France, yeah. Australia. What comes to your mind when you see his image? I mean, honestly, too. Honestly, like, what comes to mind? What comes to mind is the, is the beef. What comes to mind is the death. What comes to mind is Vegas, I think, for most people still. I mean, if you're very familiar with me, like, wow, he was a genius. And wow, yeah. what a fucking tragedy. Those right. two things, right? Right. Genius, life cut short, too soon. Boy, he was great. How fucking stupid it was that he's dead. That's what comes to mind for me. And I think that what most people, even a casual observer would go, but I, I know that it's confusing. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, Not the actual icon of them. It's very sexy. It's, it's very visceral. You re, you react to it. You go, I get that. But the meaning of it. And when you look at the five parts and, and what we're doing here is like the first three parts, even the credit sequence, the first part is the first verse of Dear Mama. The second part, the credit sequence is the second verse of Dear Mama. Yeah. The third part being the final verse. And then part four was that thing you saw, that on children when he loses himself to that poem that she would play. Yes. And he Ke- goes and does Ke- it. Ke- yeah. Yep. And that might be the credit sequence for it. But my point is, is that the original intent with his life and his mother's life was meant to represent this fight for social justice, this fight for equality, fighting the oppressor, not white people, not this person, that like whoever's oppressing. And that original that kid that we said, I, what am I going to do with German? I can't even pay my rent here. Yeah. That got lost somewhere along the way, especially when he signed a death row. And there are conflicting reasons why people think he, whatever, he was going to come around. Who, who cares? Uh, we do care. <laughs> but I think when you see the narrative, the true narrative, Fanny lost her way to addiction after the revolution or after the Panther 21 trial in 71. She lost her way to addiction. When her son died, she was clean. She had to pick up the pieces and make sense of all this. 
not only just the business sense of it, but like, what does this stand for? And what you'll see in part five is now bringing meaning to the actual icon of him. The reason why I'm doing this, like, what does this really mean? It can't represent this death row bullshit. So what's the answer? This is going to sound random, but it's like, I don't think we're going to win equality for all by disenfranchising each other. When you hear him talk, when you hear her speak, you'll find one thing that I believe, education and knowledge, the two things this country absolutely does not value. I'm talking about in middle America, when you go over the flyover states, there's no value in education, knowledge, whatever. You talk about the white man right now and you go, shit, man. There's a scene where Marlon Brando in our film, he's out there talking about Bobby Seale had just gotten killed. He's at his funeral. And he's talking about like, as white people, we have to wake up and learn to empathize with the plight of these people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's what it, where it relates to today is I think we're all missing the point right now. It's like, I think we all need each other for this. I think that you got something that I don't have. I got something you don't have. And if Fanny really stood for this, you should see who her last romantic interest was. It was this oddball, white, bald man, boxing guy, just a hippie. And you're like, what do they have in common? I think what they had in common was like what I think should be taught in grammar school, which is empathy for all cultures. Right. You know, I think that we don't have cultural empathy. And I don't mean that just in like the obvious African, Latin American, Asian countries, but Irish culture, right. German culture, yeah. English culture. We have, we have no empathy. When I look at their journey, I see that built into, into her. Afeni. Right. I see that built into Tupac, a real understanding of like, oh, that's what's valuable about that culture. And, oh, this is what's valuable about my culture. And we can celebrate this together. But unfortunately, we're fucked here. We're not on a level playing field. All the obvious things, right? When we get to this present BLM and what happened with George Floyd and so many other black men and and women and children, I'm not even going to say it's obvious because it's beyond obvious what's going on right now, you know? And the reason why I wanted to do this film, it, it sounds, I don't know, I'm trying not to sound corny, but in order to fight any oppression, it's got to be a rainbow coalition. That sounds corny, but I mean, it's, it's only sounds corny in the context of the present day, right? It used to sound ridiculous. People now say, you know, civil war could happen, right? That's yeah, yeah. how bad it is, yeah. right? Number one. Number two, the woke culture, extreme wokeness. This is you to me, not Absolutely. you. Extreme wokeness is as bad as MAGA. Absolutely. Right? They're, they're just as bad. I want to hear like, yeah. why you think that's true. And the other thing was we need white people. <laughs> this is you. This is you. We need white people. We need some of the old-fashioned freedom riders, right? Yeah. These are not super popular points of mm-hmm. view among black people. There's a lot of anti-woke white liberals who say, well, you know, watch Bill Maher, you know. Donald Trump's trying to destroy democracy, but, you know, they have these dumb mask regulations. The, the woke liberals are as bad as the MAGA people. I thought a little bit of a caricature of Bill, but not yeah, much, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, I hear that from some anti-woke white people. I don't hear that from many black people who say, who say that, but you, you're, you're saying it. Behind closed doors. And yeah. I rarely hear black people in the artistic community say something as blunt as, we need white people. Yeah. You know? So, and, and these are all just, these are like little snippets that illustrate, yeah. I think, the point you're getting yeah. to. This is not a moment for rainbow coalitions. That's not a moment where that discussion At has all. a lot of traction or a lot of people in the amen corner who are like, yeah, yeah, yeah rainbow yeah. coalition, great. <laughs> you know? So like unpack that stuff that's in there and 
why that kind of an attitude and philosophy could actually have traction in this moment when it's really not mm -hmm. very popular, at least in the current media environment. Mm -hmm. I know there are a lot of people believe in rainbow coalitions out in America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The flyover country where you go. Yeah. But <laughs> that's a very unpopular, very un, a lot of deaf ears to that discussion. On and both how, sides? On both sides. And how does a series like this break through that when it's not like a didactic thing? You're going to have to look and find it in there. I want to hear about how you think about it, the aspiration you have for yeah, it. Yeah, you know, it's interesting to go after say first that artistically when you're in something it's very difficult to articulate it because you're playing the instrument yeah. but I know how to articulate that so what you'll see in the film and the articulation of it will do far more justice than what my mouth can do now because I'm in the car yeah. right but when I think about this whole thing with white men and I think that on the left people think oh it's one kind of white man that we're fighting and this is what it is you forget that there's all these other white men over here that traditionally are classic, like freedom writer type people. Yeah. I brought up George Clooney. Right. Being the traditional Hollywood liberal, right? Yeah, right. I'm biracial, so let's start with that. I, I can see both sides of the fence. I, I can't imagine what he's thinking right now. He's probably at home, like just shook and doesn't know what to say or do for fear of being called something. Right. I'm talking about a liberal. Yeah. Because woke, wokeness has got so bad that people are digging up shit you said in the 70s. <laughs> digging up shit you said in the 90s, not even the 70s, right? The, the culture always changes. The, the lexicon changes. You got to start judging people on shit like that. Then we got to tear down all the statues. We got to take MLK down. Yeah. We got to take JFK down. Fuck, let, forget the politics. Let's go to rock. Yeah. You know, they're going on whatever's happening with whatever artist in today's society. I'm like, all right, well... You want to go back to the Beatles, really? Yeah. And do a forensic analysis of that? You want to go back to um, Led Zeppelin and the Who and do a real, like, a DNA rape kits and whatever? I don't know. I don't I don't know. Like, eh, age, you know, Rolling Stone, who, how old she was and wasn't? Yeah, yeah. Like, you, do you really want to do that, you yeah. know? I'm not condoning underage anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, and women and children, capital punishment to me, right? right? But as far as, like, there was something that happened in this culture and I'm not going to put this on black people or liberals. Well, on the left, when we started, here's another thing. White women. That's that's a third world fucking thing in our history. White women. But when we started calling these angry white women Karens. Yeah. But here again, <laughs> you know, like you're di I'm not saying there was that Central Park Karen. Yeah, remember yeah, how yeah. that came yeah, around? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wasn't Obama. I was, I'm sure you were. And I'm sure she was. But the way they skinned that woman alive. I'm not saying what she did. That shit she did was fucked up. Right. I mean, that was like, <laughs> that was fucked up. Yeah. But my point is, is like, there's no nuance. And you know this. I'm not saying anything that whatever. And when you look in, in this film, I, I think that in the journey of Tupac Nafini, there's an appreciation for others. Yeah. There's a deep appreciation and an adoption and an adaption of other ideas and cultures, not just the, the radical thing that she stood for. You see him talking about as far as all that shit he was popping. Like, as an artist... And as a community leader, you know, when we go into this editing room, you're going to see my partner, my creative partner, yeah. is, is a gentleman from Finland, right. a white guy. Some people in this business would be like, he's got to be a black editor. I'm like, well, first of all, how are you going to achieve any of your ambitions creatively? Of course, everything needs to be diverse, but like, I'm going to collaborate with the chemistry I have with the person. If it's an Asian woman yeah. and she's a rock star at like doing this type of writing, 
I'm fucking with her. Yeah. I, so I don't know. I did answer the question, but it's yeah, just. Yeah. Well, so just, just to end this one little thing here, you mentioned Clooney, right? And I, I'm not going after George, but woke Hollywood. You, you made the point. You're using Clooney as an example. Yeah, he um, was woke light back then. Right? <laughs> of, of, but of well-intentioned white yeah. liberals who used to be allies. Yep. Right? And now are, as you said, shook. Mm-hmm. Shivering. I think the, the quote that I liked was, uh, they shook. They don't know what moves to make or if another letter got added to that alphabet. Like, how do we get out of that? White liberals who used to be like, hey, I'm on your side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now you've got on one side yep. saying you're not woke enough. You're not pure enough. You did yep. this. You did that. Whether it's in your past or you don't have enough diversity in your production company, whatever it is. But like a lot of litmus tests from that side. Yep. Rejecting the traditional allyship. And on the other side, people are just fucking scared who are like, I can't make a project that's political. I can't make a project that's racial. I can't make a project that's historical. There's so many fucking landmines here yep. that the guy who used to want to make political Yep. Stuff, mainstream political entertainment, is now like, man, it's not worth my fucking time. That's it. I'm not, and what it could do to my career, my reputation to go walk in that minefield. Because there's a lot of minds out there. I don't even know where they are. And my Geiger counter doesn't really work anymore. So like, fuck it, man. Let me make small personal films. Go produce television shows where I don't take any risks, right? That's right. So is that, A, do you think that's an accurate assessment of where we are? And B, what's the fucking way out of that? 1,000% accurate assessment of where we are. Look at what they do to Matt Damon every five months. <laughs> he's almost canceled he's canceled i think we're gonna cancel him yeah. you know? the other problem i think is an internal problem on the left is you gotta stop kneecapping your rock stars meaning the al frankens of the world now cuomo i don't know enough about like what i know he was an asshole not yeah. on the low or whatever i don't know enough about the groping so i'm not gonna get into that right yeah, yeah. but on the right i'm not considering myself a, a democrat I'm, I'm definitely not a republican right but <laughs> on the let's I just say, say progressive right I think that any political leader, and people need to keep this in mind, one is narcissistic. Yeah. I mean, it just comes with the personality or whatever. And two, there's got to be a deep flaw somewhere. Just it's human nature. So if liberals or Democrats don't collectively come together and go, look, there's got to be some fallibilities here. We have to really assess and, and quickly, like, whether it was a real crime. Yeah. or something against humanity, whatever. And if it isn't, move on. Right. Move on. Because these type of rock stars... Yeah, don't come along every day. They don't come along every day, but how do we change it? Like, yeah. I think it, that side has to change within itself. And I, I, I think we obviously see that struggle, right? Yeah. Um, but I also think that... I got to be real, man. I think it's a wrap, so... I think it's a wrap. I think it's a wrap. I think we're... I think, we're I done. Think, I think we're I think it's done. over. I think we're, we're over. This we're is over. why you're going to finish these next two projects. Okay. Can I ask you something real quick? Yeah. Where do you think we are before we move on? Where do you think the reality of the, the midterms I think, I, and the I think, I, think, I, I think things are going to get worse before they get better. We haven't hit bottom yet. In terms of conflict and in terms of division, I think we're... we're you, th- you think we'll go here and then you think... I don't know what will happen after yeah. that. I think there's something's got to break. And I don't think it's broken yet. Things I, I don't it think needs to get bloody. Not not literally, but maybe literally. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. That I, all I know is I don't think that, that January 6th, as a symbolic thing of on a lot of different levels, that is race components, economic components, conspiracy theory components, the whole basic, like, we can't talk to each other, we're living in separate universes thing, the polarization thing, the disunity thing. That, to me, doesn't feel like the end. The fever didn't break. It's gotten worse in the last year rather than better. And people are angrier, more divided, more unable to communicate across that barrier than they did before. I wasn't like I was under some illusion in that moment that it was all going to get better. But things have gotten worse since then. And, and so to me, the trajectory is in the direction towards more conflict, less communication, more violence. 
for sure more violence. Like, and I don't mean necessarily we will end up in a full-blown civil war, but the tolerance for political violence is rising on the right primarily, yeah. but a little bit on the left. Like the notion to tolerate that political violence is okay, is justified because people have lost faith in the validity of the democracy, of the institutions, of the economy, of all these things. Mm -hmm. Capitalism is broken in a lot of people's minds from left and right. Democracy is broken in a lot of people's minds from left and right. When people lose faith in the underlying economics, and the underlying political system, they start to say things like, well, violence is okay in this circumstance. And once they start to say violence is okay, and there's a lot of public opinion research on this. It's more on the right than on the left, but it's a little bit on the left, which is in order to save the country, that becomes the mentality. Save the country, that violence is, is okay. When I lived in London for a period of time, it was a period of time when the IRA bombed the subways like every couple of weeks in the early 90s. And we would, every couple of weeks, I'd have to walk to work because the subway line was closed because it was either a bomb threat or, or an actual bomb that went off in the subway. Wow. Wow. That's early 90s, not that long ago, right? You know, that's what happens when a country starts to, to tolerate routine acts of political violence. You can see it in Israel, too. There's other places in the occupied territories. It, it just, shit gets, gets ill. <laughs> and, and, that's, and, that's, and that's the trajectory we're on, yeah. is towards people being more like, oh, no, I understand why this is happening. It's okay. I'm not necessarily I will engage in political violence, but if it happens, I understand why, because the countries at stake and that justifies doing this thing. And people on the right feel that for one set of reasons, the left. That's definitely the trajectory. So Trump, I don't know where that goes. you think Trump comes back? What do you think I don't, about I don't know. I don't do prediction. Yeah. I don't know. I, mean, who, I just don't know. All I, I think, Republican? You think well, I think if Trump runs for the Republican nomination, he'll be the Republican nominee. And, and then at least, there's at least 50% chance to be the next president of the United States. That's but I don't know what's going to happen. And I, and I, my favorite political philosopher continues to be Yogi Berra, who said, you know, prediction is always difficult, especially about the future. That's my mantra. I don't like to predict. I think the trend lines towards more conflict and more tolerance of violence are, are clear. And no so doubt. that just points to me. We haven't hit that break point. And yeah, what yeah, happens yeah. after the break point, I don't know. Does it become rebuilding or does it become disintegration? I don't know the answer to that question. But I, I think we're not bouncing back right now. <laughs> and, we're, and we're other political rock stars. Yeah. Before we move on, when you look out there and I go, wow. There really aren't a lot of people with a real moral compass that have the fire in their belly to lead. Well, yes, it's part of the problem is that when people look at the system, the structure, and they think, I cannot accomplish anything, it's so broken. Yeah. Good people don't want to run for office anymore because they think it's fucked mm -hmm. or they'll get that, sh shot or they don't want to raise that, all that money. Like go to the United States Senate, have the people there. If you get an honest answer from someone like Michael Bennett, I'm just talking about younger, <laughs> on the younger end. I'm just a pick up the, right, demographically. Right. You talk to somebody in their 40s or 50s in the United States Senate, they're like, they're the most fucked up institution I've ever been part of. So right. I can't get anything done here. Like nothing happens here. Wow. Smart people, smart, ambitious, idealistic people don't want to go work at a broken place. All right, this seems like a good place to end part one of this special episode with Alan Hughes. Alan, thank you for being with us on Hell and High Water. We're going to take this 24-hour break. Everyone's recovering from the Labor Day weekend, so that was enough scintillating genius for now. Let's take a break and let people absorb all of that. And then everyone out there, please come back and take a listen to part two of our conversation with Alan Hughes tomorrow. You will get to hear Alan talk about the milestones in his groundbreaking career, including many of the hit movies, maybe all of them that he directed, Menace to Society, Book of Eli. Uh, remember, that's the one starring Denzel Washington, Apocalyptic Future, lots of violence, fantastic movie. Also, Alan's four-part HBO documentary series, The Defiant Ones, about the lives of Jimmy Iovine and Dr. Dre and how they changed not just the music business, but the entertainment industry and in a lot of ways, popular culture itself in the long arc of those joined careers. Alan will also, also give us the lowdown on what's going on 
the Marvin Gaye biopic that he currently has in the works and that he's going to really start to drill down on in 2023. So be sure to come back tomorrow and check out part two of our very special Alan Hughes episode of Hell and High Water. 